For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the 315th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with author Jennifer Stile, author of the new novel, Exile Music. And stay tuned for after the interview, when I have a short excerpt from the audiobook of Exile Music. And stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jennifer Style, author of the new novel, the new novel Exile Music. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, Exile Music, yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, my no- the novel tells the story of a family of Austrian Jewish musicians who are living in Vienna in the 1930s. The father is a viola player with the Vienna Philharmonic. The mother's an opera singer. And their daughter is around 10 at around the time of the Anschluss. And the family, uh, around 1938, by 1938, there were only three countries in the world still granting visas to Jewish refugees who were fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe. So my family finds visas to Bolivia. So most of the book takes place in Bolivia, where they find refuge. Um, so, so it's a story of how they rebuild their lives all over again in the middle of the Andes. And and do you remember the, excuse me, do you remember the original idea that led you to write exile music? I do. It's pretty vivid, actually. I lived in Bolivia for four years. My husband was working for the EU um, as head of the EU delegation at the time. So we were living in La Paz, which is at around 12,000 feet or 4,000 meters, depending on where you are, how you measure things. Um, And life at that altitude can be fairly challenging, even if you haven't just lost your family, your career, your money, um, everything. Um, and so I was imagining when I lived there, oh, actually before, sorry, let me start over again. Um, my husband came home from work one evening and said, 
I've just had the most incredibly interesting conversation with the Austrian consul who said that during the war, there are between 10 and 20 Jewish refugees here, um, most of whom were artists and musicians and had lost their professional lives and their families and careers and money, et cetera. Um, and so there was a fairly large refugee community that, there during the war, um, which neither of us had actually known. I've read a lot about Jewish communities elsewhere in South America, but not in Bolivia and definitely not in La Paz. So I very soon afterwards met a man who whose parents were among these refugees. And he introduced me to other other people who had fled the Nazis to come to Bolivia. Um, one of these, well, I, I could tell you about another one if you, if you want. But <laughs> I'm sure there's a man who came from Austria when he was only eight years old and grew up in La Paz and learned English from his landlord's uh, children. And he told me some funny stories about climbing up from the third class cabins on the ship to the first and second class cabins so that he could watch films. He was a huge film buff and he ended up owning a bunch of cinemas in La Paz. And it was really interesting to interview him because he's now in his 80s and has never been back to Austria. And when I asked him if he if he had ever gone back or thought about it, he said that never, ever, ever would he consider going back to Austria after what it did to his family. And those emotions are still so strong for him that he was in tears. So I wanted to... to it seemed to me that a lot of the, the world didn't know the stories of these Jewish refugees and what they faced in La Paz. Um, there's some unusual challenges that come along with living at altitude. And also when you're, you know, you're, you're coming from a city and suddenly you're in the middle of the Andes mountains. Um, it's a pretty big cultural adjustment, um, aside from the language and everything else. Um, so, so, so I got the idea, you know, first from my husband, but then from the refugees and descendants of refugees who I met while I was living in La Paz. And so if someone listening is not familiar with La Paz, uh, what would that city have been like in the late 1930s compared to Austria? Well, it was little, I mean, one of the memoirs I read said, you know, this is, this wasn't a city. This was little more than a village. Um, I mean, it was it was a city, but not a city in the way that Vienna was a city. It's it's every road in La Paz is either straight up or straight down. It's it's a you know you're surrounded by the Andes on every side. You're kind of in a it, the city spills down a bowl in the middle of the mountains. And at the time, there were probably only around two hundred and 200,000 people living there, 250,000. Um, you know, when you're coming from a, a, a major urban center like Vienna, where there was opera and theater and orchestras and, and the world in which my characters lived, and you go to La Paz, where there were none of these things. Um, it, it was much less developed, much... Um, uh, it, it was just, yeah, it was much less. Much smaller. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was yeah. a lot smaller. Um, and so, so, so was there a specific reason that these refugees selected Bolivia and La Paz as a 
choice to move to at that time? I mean, obviously yeah. they were under a lot of duress. I mean, it's not like it was a choice, but. Right. Right. And by 1938, only three countries in the world were still accepting Jews who were fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe. So Bolivia was one of those three countries. And the other two were the Dominican Republic and um, Japan-occupied Shanghai. So after 1938, it would have been impossible to get a visa to anywhere else. And and so... You you talked about um, the person that you interviewed who ended up um, owning and running uh, movie theaters and cinemas in La Paz. Um, I'm curious, in terms of the research that you did, um, did 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 this community um, did a lot of them stay there after the war? Did they assimilate? Um, what? What's what was kind of your discovery in terms of your research in terms of that that community and and how they adapted? I mean, did they did they leave after the war? Did they move to the U.S. or other places? What what was your discovery there? Yes, um, the majority of them did leave after the war. Um, I think a lot of people found it quite difficult to adjust to life there. So those who could left for the United States or to the newly formed Israel once that, um, after 1948 Mm -hmm. and, um, and others went to other places in South America that were slightly bigger cities or had more to offer in the way of, of careers and, and jobs. Um, so it's actually quite a tiny community that's left in La Paz, so while it was it was a much bigger community during the war, but there are still some of those people there. And did did they kind of assimilate? I mean, have they stayed, you know, in their community? Or I'm I'm curious about that. Well, that's a really interesting question because that depends who you ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because some people, and, you know, I read a lot of first-person accounts in addition to speaking with people. Um, Some people published their accounts really just to to have a record of their experience and to share with their family. Others, you know, published them with with actual publishing houses. Um, But some people said, oh, you know, people just stuck to the the German refugees. The German-speaking refugees kept to themselves, and they they didn't bother to learn the language. And then people like um, Wilhelm, who's now Guillermo, um, he, he's the 80 year old man I interviewed. Right. He, he he's completely assimilated utterly. And he, you know, when I asked him, you know, I, I used a lot of different pieces of his story in, in my book because he, my, my main character, Orly learned Spanish from her landlady's children, just like Guillermo learned Spanish and, and he apparently learned Spanish right away. Um, he, he, he said he was completely welcomed. He went to, um, schools with Bolivian children and he just, you know, and I said, was there any anti-Semitism? And he says, no, never. I never experienced anti-Semitism. But then I've read many other accounts that said very clearly that there was anti-Semitism. Um, so, um, you know, again, a lot of these questions, it just, I mean, I'm sure both are correct. Maybe Guillermo didn't experience anti-Semitism and other people did, which is probably the case. Um, so I'm losing track of where I started here. No, no, that's, that's fine. Um, so in the book, you write about, um, in addition to what we've been discussing in terms of this community that 
that fled uh, Europe and, and moved to La Paz. Um, you, you also write about bisexuality and the love story between your character Orly and her best friend. Um, and this is obviously, as we've been discussing, this is a historical novel set in the late 1930s. And I'm curious, how, how did you um, approach that character and did you do any research um, in, in terms of, uh, how should I say this, in, in, in terms of, you know, just the, the um, people's acceptance or discussion or acknowledgement of bisexual relationships at, at that time? I did. I did a lot of research on that. Um, I did a lot of reading around that, around um, kind of what was then pretty much an underground uh, gay scene in Germany and Austria around that time. And I think when we look at the past, we we often think that maybe people weren't having as much sex back then or or <laughs> or we, we we think of them as more proper or something but people were very much having sex back then and um gay people were having sex with other gay people and uh there's there's quite an interesting series of books actually called the scorpion um and that book actually is mentioned in exile music um but it's that book talks a lot about if the main character is, is a lesbian. Um, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the lesbians in the literature at the time come to bad ends, probably because they weren't allowed to allow lesbians to have happy endings. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of characters who end up alcoholics or suicidal, things like that. But there's some quite passionate and explicit love scenes in these books, and I was very interested in those. And I think I didn't set out um, with the intent of making orally any particular sexuality, it just happened organically as I was writing her character um, that I felt like her bond with her best friend was was more than than mere friendship, even though they were quite young when she left Austria. And the people she's most drawn to in La Paz are other girls. And I think she isn't quite sure what this is or what to do about it until she reads the scorpion and realizes that there are other girls like her and women like her. And she eventually talks to a friend about this and her friend says, Oh yeah, my aunt was like that. Um, and realizes that, you know, she isn't the only person who's ever felt this way about, about girls. Um, and I think while she isn't for the most part interested in boys, there is, um, I don't want to give too much away, but there is one boy in the book who she does come to love very much. And, and that is a genuine love relationship. Um, I didn't want it. I think because he's such a lovely character and because she wouldn't have been able to, certainly not in Bolivia um, or probably anywhere at that time. But Bolivia these days is a pretty difficult place to be gay. So back then it must would have been a million times harder and she certainly couldn't have married a woman. Right. So, but I did a lot of research about that and a lot of thinking about, about how she, you know, what thoughts she would have had about her own sexuality and who she would have talked to about it and things like that. And yeah. And so what was your path to publication for exile music? How long did it take you to write it? And then, and then what was the process for, for finding a publisher or agent? Well, 
Um, I've had, I've had my agent since my first book. So, Mm -hmm. and I adore her and she's wonderful. Um, so I had an agent already, but with fiction generally, as you, as you know, I'm sure I have, you do have to write the whole book before you can sell it unless you're a celebrity. Um, so this book took me a very long time to write partly because I, I did four or five years of research before I could really write a lot of the scenes. And even when I was doing final rewrites, I was still researching. I was researching this book right into the day it went to the printer. <laughs> I mean, I could probably research it for the rest of my natural life because there's just so much material and there's so many different aspects to this book. I mean, there was an Austrian holiday that I... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I, I wanted to include in the book, it was something my husband had told me about in one of the, la- the latest drafts, and I ended up finding an expert who'd written a PhD thesis on this subject at the very last minute. So, um, so anyway, so... After I had a, I don't know if it was a first draft or one of one of my first drafts, I, I sent it to my agent. So generally what I do is when I feel like I've taken it as far as I can by myself, I send it to my agent and I usually go through a, f- a few rounds of edits with her. Mm-hmm. And when she feels that um, it's good enough, she will then send it out to editors. She doesn't, she, she doesn't like to send anything out that isn't brilliant so right um but at the same time i i knew um that i would be doing a lot more work with an editor it's it's quite a complicated book and i really love and appreciate the editing the whole entire editing process because the book is so much better with each draft and i think i also need time and between drafts in order to get new perspective on it and see what's missing, see what doesn't ring quite right. So um, I had a wonderful editor at Viking um, who helped me rework each draft, and it just it got it got so much better with with each successive draft, just because I had the right people asking me questions and and challenging me to get it to the next level. Um, I mean, it's, it's not a process for the impatient (laughs) and (laughs) I'm a pretty impatient person. So it's a strange career for me to have chosen, but, um, but I do know, you know, how much it just takes time. The whole thing takes time. Yeah. And so in, in, um, in terms of the actual writing process and, and the different drafts, did you outline or do you outline when you're writing fiction or do you write? more organically? (laughs) Um, I don't outline. I have tried outlining a few times with disastrous um, consequences. Usually what happens is if I've written an outline for something, I then completely lose interest in writing it. For me, I just, all my discovery happens in the actual writing. So 
often when I sit down to write a scene, I have no idea how it's going to go. And it's only after I start writing that I see, oh, this is how it's going. I don't want to sound too much like I'm channeling spirits from another realm, but sometimes it does feel like that, especially when I'm writing dialogue. It's, it's almost like I'm recording something or that, I don't know. I, I just, I actually cannot write unless I'm writing. I can't think forward about the plot unless I'm actually working on it, which may, might be why I need so many drafts. Um, but I, I also tend to write in, in kind of little pieces that can then be shuffled around like a deck of cards and, and put in different order. Um, and so I don't always write the scenes in the order in which they end up in the book. I write the scene that's most interesting to me at the moment. Um, I'm actually, I'm writing a novel at the moment as part of a PhD program. And that that's an interesting experience because my, my supervisor actually writes novels the same way I do. And so I'm writing with more conscious intent than I usually do. That conscious intent is still part of my process, but it usually comes in, um, in the editing phase and not in the first draft. And so where are you getting a PhD program from or a PhD from? Um, the university of Birmingham in the UK. Um, I'm talking to you at the moment from London. Mm -hmm. Uh, although, although we don't actually live here at the moment, we live in Tashkent, Uzbekistan and we're just evacuated. Um, but the university of Birmingham has a distance learning PhD program. And do you, do you think that that novel that you're working on for your PhD will, will be, um, something that you submit for publication at some point? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I am having so much fun writing this book. It's completely unlike anything I've ever done. And I love writing it. And I love the whole process of the PhD program. I just feel it feels like the greatest luxury in the world to write a book with a PhD supervisor when I'm used to writing books alone in the dark. And so, so, um, I guess what, what's that process like? I mean, obviously you, you were referring earlier to multiple drafts that your um, agent and then working with an editor. So, so what, what has this experience been like for you? Well, when we started out, um, he would, he said to me, I think the first thing he said to me after our first meeting was he asked me to write five different openings for the novel that we'd been discussing to get into a PhD program. You have to come up with a whole proposal. So you have to have at least a vague idea of what you're going to write. Um, so I had an idea for a book, but it was pretty formless. And he said, well, I want you to write five openings, five possible entry points for this book. So I did that. And that was really exciting. And I ended up using pieces of all of them, although none of them are the current entry point. And I would, after that, I, I kind of just built on those original pieces and various characters developed or were introduced. And then, then I decided to throw them out. And after I generated kind of a mass of material that wasn't necessarily in any sort of chronological order, I started from the beginning again and we talked through the structure, but I meet him once a month and he reads what I'm working on, tells me how I feel about it. We talk about what I'm reading. Um, I've been reading a ton of South American literature cause that's 
Um, this is a, another South American book, entirely South American. So, um, so that's been really exciting too. Reading, discovering all these authors I hadn't read before, and, um, and are you reading those in English or or Spanish? Um, I'm reading them in English, unfortunately. I speak Spanish, but mm-hmm. my Spanish is not at the level at which I can easily read sure, sure. giant novels. So <laughs> I wish it were. Yeah. Um, but you can't so, do everything. So you've also had a memoir published uh, previously, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, an American journalist in Yemen. How different is it for you writing fiction versus memoir? I personally find fiction much harder. Writing memoir, I, I was a journalist for many years, and writing memoir feels like long-form journalism. I was writing a story that I already knew. I knew the plot. I knew the characters. I knew what happened. So all I had to do was come up with the structure and and actually write the scenes. Whereas with fiction, I start with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I and that that's the hard part. That's the, there's nothing worse than a white page. Um, whereas with a memoir, you at least have the material handy. Um, and I was just my memoir is just about one year of my life. It's the year that I I spent running this newspaper in Yemen. So I had a you know fairly succinct piece of time to work with. And that writing that book wasn't nearly as difficult as writing the next book, which was a novel, or writing this one. This one took forever. Um, <laughs> but And so given, yeah. given your, your writing, both memoir and fiction, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening and are working on their own stories or novels? Well, what I often tell young writers is that they should – Go somewhere that makes them profoundly uncomfortable and live there for a while and see how it changes their perspective on the world. I I just found that while I was a writer and um, not a terrible writer before I moved to, to Yemen, I felt like I didn't have anything really to say. And it was only from living in Yemen for four years and then later in South America and now in Central Asia that I've gotten perspective not only on my own life, but on the U S and privilege and all sorts of other things that come up. Um, You don't, I think realize how entangled you are with your own culture when you never leave it. And I think, Sometimes a lot of people who are very good writers simply have nothing to say. And often if you travel or switch your environment so that you're challenged, it will, it will cause realizations to happen in your brain that give you something to write about. If that makes any sense. Sure. Um, so what books, fiction or nonfiction have you read recently that you would recommend? Okay, so I loved Elaine Castillo's book, America is Not the Heart. It's wonderful and brilliant and so beautifully written and so sexy and just fantastic. Um, I love that one. I loved uh, Prayers for the Stolen by Jennifer Clement. Um, I, what else have I loved? Um, 
Blood of the Dawn by Claudia Salazar Jimenez. Um, a lot of the stories of Clarice Lispector. Um, what else have I read recently? I really enjoyed reading Death in the Andes by um, Mario Vargas Llosa. Uh, I mean, that's you know not a new novel, but mm-hmm. one I really, really enjoyed and got a lot out of. So, great. do you want more? Or is that no, like- no, that, that's, that's great. So where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your novel? Well, my website address is jenniferstyle.net. So that's Jennifer, and then my surname is S-T-E-I-L.net. Um, I'm also on Twitter, so at jfstyle7, so J-F-S-T-E-I-L-7. Um, I'm on Facebook and you can just look for my name and, um, exile music is, you can go to the, the Viking, look for it on online anywhere, actually anywhere. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jennifer style, author of the new novel exile music. So go grab a copy of the novel now. And Jennifer, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Great. Now stay tuned for a short excerpt from the novel Exile Music, written by Jennifer Stile, narrated by Hilary Huber, and published by Penguin Audio, available wherever audiobooks are sold. When I think of Austria, I remember what a child remembers, details as vivid as the bright shards of a dream. The coffee-warmed air of the kitchen the rough fabric of my father's suits against my cheek, the chalk dust of my classroom tickling my nose, the ice-crusted snow in the Eswitenvisa meadow that cut my eyebrow open when I fell off the toboggan halfway down the slope, my Annalisa, my parents' voices in the kitchen as I hovered still and silent by the door, secretly listening. It was important then to listen. I remember the tang of my mother's apricot jam spread over a thick layer of butter on crusty bread. The fungal stink of my older brother's dirty sports clothing on the bathroom floor. The earthy scent of the square olive oil soap that was always slipping into the sink. I remember a plum tree in our small communal courtyard that dropped its sour sweet fruit onto our terrace. They were a dark, dusty purple, more oval than the green ones we would eat in Bolivia. In Vienna, Annalisa's mother collected the dropped fruits and used them to make tortas. I remember my mother's voice in our parlor, starting off low and gathering the energy to soar. I remember the scent of rosin on horsehair, the vibrations of my father's viola, how I could feel the notes on my skin even after he stopped playing and I was in bed, listening only to the silence. I remember the inky smell of my school books as I cracked their spines, the sound of Frau Fessler's ruler smashing into my desk when she caught me with a book on my lap during math class. The way the fruit gummies from vices got stuck in my back teeth, so I had to pick them out with my fingernails. I remember the damp heat of Annalisa's hand as she folded it with mine for the last time. 
I remember our neighbors' long coats decorated with flocks of badges, saying only, yeah. The swastikas on every armband and flag, pinned to every lapel, painted on our sidewalks. They even fell from the sky, flurries of paper spiders dropping onto our heads. I remember the newspapers my parents hid from me under sofa cushions. I remember lying awake, twisting the satiny border of my blanket in my fingers until my mother came and curled around me. I remember her breath on my neck, the ice of her fingers on my spine, stroking my skin until I drifted into dreams. The bland, quotidian details, the textures of ordinary days, seared themselves most permanently. Except for Annalisa. Annalisa, who was neither bland nor ordinary. Annalisa, who was more a part of me than not. Our mothers had birthed us in the same building a week apart, and from then on, there were no divisions between us. The four syllables of her name were my first song. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.